Welcome to The 12th Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 180 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We are a working library with more than 75,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at www.mercantilelibrary.com. And we always welcome new members and guests. Joining us today in the lecture hall on the 12th story of the Mercantile Building are Jason Barron, Executive Director of Cincinnati's Bike Share System, Red Bike. Hello. Deborah Ginocchio, board member here at the Mercantile. Hello. And myself, Gabrielle Blocher, also a board member. Today, we'll discuss The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. And a warning, there will be spoilers discussed today, so proceed at your own discretion. So The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a fantasy novel by C.S. Lewis published in 1950. It is the first in a seven-book series known as The Chronicles of Narnia. Lewis was a converted Christian, and the book is widely acknowledged as an allegory of the crucifixion story, though he called it a supposal, as in supposing that there was another land called Narnia and there was an Aslan there and he had to be sacrificed for people's wrongdoings. So let's go ahead and get started. I just am curious about um, your thoughts of the book in general and then your experience in reading the book um, at this point in your lives. So whoever's interested in kind of starting off. So I was a rookie and I guess a lot of people probably come to this book as children and they read it and it's fascinating and in the world and they're swinging a sword around and playing with their brothers and sisters um, and wanting to be one of the characters from it. But I'd, I had heard of it many times, but I'd never read it. Uh, the movies came out when I was probably in my mid-20s and that's not the kind of movie you're gonna watch when you're in your mid-20s. So I probably would embrace it now. So I came into this kind of, kind of originally and for me, I was fascinated with, I haven't read a children's book you know, in years, and I almost found it like I, I, I struggled to get into it, and then once I got into it, it I just flew right through it. Mm-hmm. Really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. When did you guys come to the book? Um, I read it when I was a kid, and it was uh, it was my favorite book. For it seems like, like such years. a better way to come to it. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. interesting. Yeah, I'm like Jason. I was a rookie, and I'm embarrassed to say. I don't. I don't and know. I don't think my children ever read it either. So I was a bad mother <laughs> because my children to my knowledge, didn't read C.S. Lewis. Uh-huh. Um, it's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how embarrassing it but, is. Um, <laughs> n- I, but like Jason, you know, once I got into it, it was really, um, it was really wonderful. Maybe part of that's because it's C.S. Lewis, so he has this more lofty, erudite approach to things. Um, so you can sort of, Imagine, or maybe there really are many levels on which you can read the book, but mm-hmm. having coming to it in my dotage, um, <laughs> it's probably perfect to come to it in your dotage. Um, uh, it was it was wonderful because you could kind of see it on different levels. So the whole hodgepodge of the mythology and the creatures, and mm-hmm. the just he kind of threw the kitchen sink in mm-hmm. with with um, the creatures in the story. Mm-hmm. It was it was fun to sort of. Well, in reading it as an adult, it's definitely told 
almost like you would tell a fable. So mm -hmm. this is a book that is you know, 150 or 160 pages and could easily be rewritten as 300 pages and be written much more detailed and with longer conversations and different interludes. But instead, he very much tells it kind of, and all of the kids were happy, and then they went over here, and mm -hmm. it kind of explains it, but it's definitely told in a different way than you would find, like, say, a Harry Potter today. Mm -hmm. like, you could write the Harry Potter novels, or you could rewrite them as, like, 160 pages told in this style, but obviously that's a different choice. So that, was, mm -hmm. that took me a second to get my head wrapped around that, and then once I did, like, when I first started reading it, it really stood out as, wow, this is a children's book. And then you get a little bit past that, and then you're, you start to see all of the nuance and kind of feel the very adult themes in it. And then it really started to take off. So my, I will say my perspective about it, I read it when I was a kid in Catholic school, Catholic kid. We were talking about um, uh, belief in Santa Claus. Uh, we should maybe do another warning at the beginning of this that we will talk about whether or not Santa Claus is real during this podcast, so it might not be for children. Um, but I... Uh, that's going to disappoint the thousands of children. I know. This I know. Regularly. My three-year-old loves podcasts. <laughs> um, these, especially. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so yeah, um, I it was it was interesting to me. To, so I was it was a favorite book of mine, and my story about this book is that I I loved it so much. Read all, the whole series when I was in like before junior high school. Left my little Catholic school and went to Walnut Hills High School for junior high. Was, I rem have a very vivid moment in my life that I'll always remember of being in Walnut Hills Library, which Walnut Hills was a uh, infinitely better educational institution than the grade school that I had been educated at prior to this moment in my life. And I told somebody that my favorite book was this book, and the guy, who was also a Catholic person, said, uh, said, oh, that allegory about the crucifixion story? And I was like, oh, I had no idea. <laughs> like, I had no idea. And I, so I felt really stupid in that moment. This, in this rereading of this book, at this point in my life, I was trying to figure out, as a 40-year-old, whether or not I could get the, get the allegory. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> and I felt that it was so, so obvious. So that's what I'm curious. You said... Well, that's fa fascinating, because I didn't find it. And I was, I was looking... My, so the first C.S. Lewis I read was Mere Christianity, yeah, which yeah. is a fascinating tome and kind of yes. internal dialogue he has with himself about... He, he basically tries to like convince himself to yep. be a Christian yep. and convince others then why they should be Christians from a very theoretical perspective, which I found fascinating. Um... So when I went to this book, I, I was thinking in my head, well, C.S. Lewis has, talks about religion. He's a very religious person. There's going to be religion in this. And I, and I was on some level looking for it, but I didn't find it in there. And one of the things I was hoping we could talk about is whether or not it is an allegory or not. Mm -hmm. And so as you said in the introduction, he denied it. And his, one of his friends, um, Tolkien, was very convinced that it was. And mm -hmm. they had this, sounds like, kind of friendship-ending fight over what the quality of each other's work. And you, mm -hmm. can, you can see from the thickness of this book versus the thickness of Tolkien, that Tolkien sounds like looked down a little bit on C.S. Lewis as like, oh, you play in children's fantasy. I am writing this much higher level <laughs> fiction. It's much more rich. It has, yeah, you right. do allegory <laughs> about creatures. Jesus, but yeah. I am doing this larger world. Um, yeah. And so for me, you know, is it an allegory? You know, there's definitely, I mean, Aslan sacrifices himself and comes back and there's a battle between good and evil. But, it, you know, it's Star Wars weekend, right? Ben Kenobi sacrifices himself to Darth Vader. Yeah. Is that a symbol for Christ yeah. or not? And, I, and I, I think on some level, 
all stories have similar ups and downs, right? Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of them are a boy and a girl and they fall in love. A lot of them are good and evil yeah. and one triumphs. You know, this has a lot of the different themes of magic that you see in a lot of other stories. Mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, on one level, an another thing that this is, is it's, it's a, what's it, what's it, a through a magic door book, right? Yeah, you're so right. Just like Harry Potter or just like Alice in Wonderland. Magical doorway stories. Yep, yeah. exactly. And so... Being John Malkovich. Oh, yeah, that's a good <laughs> one. Go. That's a really good one. I was certainly sympathetic to C.S. Lewis being like, no, I just wrote a cool story, and it just so happens that in the story, this is one of the plot elements. Mm. Like a lot of stories share a lot of plot elements. Mm. But So you're convinced that you think he set out to do it? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I think it was, uh, it's a good one. Uh, <laughs> I, and I, you know, but I think the, the, the whole thing, like there's, there's two, there are two, many uh too many sort of uh, ties in with the like when he goes back to the witch's uh house and turns all the people of stone the stone statues back, back into people and that's what like we're that's what i learned as a little kid that jesus did jesus is uh yeah like people couldn't go to heaven before jesus died on the cross and that's what that did was allow all, I, that's something that I, I think uh, particularly as a little kid so the stone creatures were in purgatory right I was gonna say is this purgatory wow. or limbo Which right one? limbo <laughs> purgatory oh, is the official oh, terminology <laughs> this is my bible studies are the woefully inadequate but the, the, my point is just simply that that's that's a thing like that was a thing all the major plot points I think um, but a, I with Aslan but I wonder if he purposely set out to do that and I'm sure if we read enough and probably you don't have to read a whole lot because I think there's a lot written on this mm -hmm. but I wonder if he just sort of that was his natural bent yeah. and he wasn't trying to be pedantic or put some object lesson out there but he was just kind of that was his natural the way his mind went. These are the went. stories I tell. Yeah. So and he was trying to do this story for his goddaughter Lucy mm -hmm. and he, like I said he just kind of threw in all those gnomes and dwarves and evil people and the satyrs from probably his own childhood mm -hmm. reading. Mm -hmm. um, and he just kind of meandered and ended up with this story. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's no lesson in it. So you're right. He's not pedantic at all. If anything, the lesson is like, don't take candy from strangers. Right? <laughs> so that's like the ultimate lesson, right? Like yeah, the real challenge is. complicated. Turkish, the you're right. There's a the bad lady. And when point. there's a bad lady and she yeah. wants to give you Turkish delight, yeah. which I was that's a really good point, fascinated Jason. to figure out what it was, but that's kind of the lesson of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. don't um, take <laughs> And yeah. one of the things I found fascinating, so I had two brothers growing up. Um, we got along great and are really, really close to this day. Um, yeah. Gabby, I know you're really close with your family. Yeah. Um, the interplay between the kids I thought was fascinating mm. and a very adult look at childhood friendships, yeah. right? And so you have you know, the older brother who's the leader, and then you've got... The older sister, who's clearly number two, but yeah. she's like the caretaker. And then you've got the younger brother, who really wishes he was as cool as his older brother, but yeah. is also a little jealous of not being as cool as the older brother. Yeah. And then you've got the baby of the group, who also is the most adventurous. And what I've found, I have a friend that has five daughters, and I totally saw his youngest daughter in Lucy. Lucy yeah. Because the youngest daughter, what I find fascinating to watch them, because, th th again, very close, five sisters, they're all within about five or six years of age, which sounds like a nightmare, but they do, do fabulously with it. Um, but, you know, there's limited supply in a family that big, right? And so the youngest daughter knows that she will never get anything original. There's mm. a whole yeah. system of personalities, but what she's figured out is that what she needs to do is pick the second thing early and call it. 
And if she did that, she can always get one of the best things. Uh -huh. And you can watch her, she's I think six, you can watch her brain work at this. And so she'll be quick to be like, she doesn't want to sit at like the coolest table chair at dinner, <laughs> but she'll pick out like the second coolest. And while everyone's fighting over the coolest, she's secured the second coolest. <laughs> right. And it's fascinating to watch her brain do that. And, and very early on, otherwise. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. And so she's learned great. this great coping mechanism, but she's also just totally fearless because like, how else are you going to get noticed? Yeah. Um, and I, it was funny because I, I told the collected daughters one time, I was like, watch out for this one. She's going to be running stuff. When you guys are like my age, she'll be the one that is in charge of everybody. Mm -hmm. And the other four looked at me, like especially the oldest two, like I was just off my rocker. Like however mm -hmm. could our youngest daughter, our youngest mm -hmm. sister be in And I was like, you watch. <laughs> and Lucy, to me, was the character I found most interesting in this. Yeah. She was the most adventurous. She was the one that you know found Narnia in the first place and you know, kind of led them on this magical quest, um, which I really I enjoyed. Well, I think, too, she probably was the one that, because he didn't have any children. He had a stepson, but right. it came to him later in life. So he right. didn't really have any children of his own, as I understand it. So the only one he knew was Lucy, who was his goddaughter. So it's probably natural that he built her up as really the one. If you had to pick one you wanted to be, you'd want to be Lucy. But I thought what was really um, good was he got kids he got kids right. I mean, he got the tension and the dynamic between them, like the whole thing with Edmund being such a, a pisser. Yeah. And, and, you know, the other mm -hmm. is just like, oh, come on, Edmund. Mm -hmm. Of course, we knew this would be Edmund's play, that he'd be the one who would be the traitor. Yeah. He really understood and got the tone of their relationship yeah. right. Yeah. The way they didn't believe Lucy when she came back with the story and she had to convince him, and then he also found Narnia, but he knew that he could have power over her by not, by, by shutting down her fantastical story and be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. She looks at him like, what are you talking, you know? Yeah. And then when he sneaks out of the beaver cottage, because even though he kind of has a sense at this point that he's kind of on the wrong team, he still wants to get that, that sweet, sweet Turkish delight. Yeah. So he's got to make his move because yeah. he's picked, right? And that's the only thing that's going to make him special. Yeah. yeah. And they're not, then they don't think he's special, so he's out of there. But they want to. You sense the tension that they're trying to figure, especially... Um, Peter, and I'm blanking on the oldest sister, but they're Susan. 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 They're trying very much to like understand his emotions and account for him. And they're like, well, Edmund's a little special, so we got to kind of <laughs> give him a little attention. And he can be a stinker but, or a pisser, but we got we to gotta bring him along. Uh, but he seems to resent that. He wants to be, he wants to be on their equal, which I, mm -hmm. I find is very an important relationship among, among kids. And You've got two daughters yourself, Gabby. Mm -hmm. So we'll see if if that's a, if that happens with them, mm -hmm. and then you probably will. You know, your youngest daughter is always going to be trying to do what the oldest is doing. Yeah, that's yeah. She'll, she'll ride a bike earlier. She'll yeah. she'll do all kinds of stuff earlier because mm -hmm. she's trying to to match her older sister. Yeah. So situationally, too, there's this thing. Um, so it's I think it's true. He wrote, he wrote children well um considering again that he didn't have he never had children um and he married quite late um but he <coughs> the situation so there's another thing that's i think a tiny bit disappointing in learning more and more about this book for me at least um which is how much of it wh what it's all based on and i think this might be the danger of having this like wildly popular book. This is like the second most popular or most popular. It goes up and down. I think now it might be the second most popular, like children's novel now we ha that we have Harry, Harry Potter. Potter probably supplanted. A it. new yeah. king. Yeah. What's that? A new king. A new king, yes. 
Um, which, by the way, I want to go one little thing too, the, the Tolkien thing. Um, so to that's, it's, it, is, it's, it is pretty humorous, their sort of battle, because it's very easily argued that the Tolkien story is also totally religious, and it's this messianic story of like a one, this one guy, it's always a boy, Harry Potter too, who's like the chosen one, who has this mission to do this one thing, and it's going to save humanity. Sounds familiar. Like, same exact story. It's just that, yeah, you're right. Like, he provided more details but so does totally that, unnecessarily. So <laughs> like does, that make it, does that make it a religious allegory, or does that just mean that that's a cool-ass story? I think... And people want to tell different versions of that. Yeah. I kind of want to tell one that has a girl as a lead. Yes, I would think that would be very good. Which, by the way, I have one to highly recommend. I'll get to that later. But um, there's a very good one. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I think it is a cool cool story, but I think um, yes, it's a bit like it was a bit snobbish of Tolkien. And I, for, by the way, also as a point of color, I don't think they, I don't think it was actually friendship ending. I think it was like true and real. Like definitely, he was like publicly said this book is silly. Um, Tolkien did about this book, but uh, but, but hello, I think they stayed. It's a silly children's book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a children. Yeah, exactly. Thank exactly. My story. My story is about the feet of. Uh, what are, who are the guys in the, the, the troll? The hobbits. the hobbits. Yeah, the hobbits. Certainly nothing more silly about hobbits. Yeah, yes. nothing exactly. Very serious. Very yes. serious. <laughs> That's exactly right. So one interesting thing, and this was one of the things I struggled with when I read the book, and it, and we get back to it, it's weird to read a, you know, not weird, but you, you bring all this other stuff in when you read it as an adult. Yeah. And one of the things I find fascinating about society, and even recently as you see um, society's opinions evolve quickly on what is taboo, right? Mm -hmm. So we've seen just in the last um, I mean, five or six years, I mean, certainly in Ohio, in 2004, we banned gay marriage, and now Ohio is, you know, excited, certainly all of my friends, they're all mm -hmm. like celebrating that gay marriage is across the land, right? And that has evolved so quickly. One of the things I found fascinating in this book, and as a mother of daughters, I'm curious your take on it, Gabby, is that the book treats the kids pretty sexist, right? So, right. so Peter, so, so Santa Claus comes, and Santa gives all of the kids a, a, a present that will help them in the greater war to come. And Peter gets a yeah. sword, and you're gonna lead an army, and be a general, and one day be king. And Susan, you get like a magic potion that will help people mm. and will like cure the sick and you'll care for them. And you'll well, be a, and Susan you'll be a gets, nurse. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Susan yep. gets a bow and arrow. She gets a bow and arrow but as well. She's not, he says, don't use. But you can't use Lucy, it for the Lucy war. Gets, and he, and he says, he says, when she gets the bow and arrow, he says to her, he goes, but don't use it in the war because it's really bad when women are in wars. Yeah. It just makes things messy. Yeah. And, and then Edmund gets an. So curious. Edmund gets yeah. another cool thing that helps him in the war, and then Lucy gets the bone the arrow potion. or knife or something. She gets Lucy something gets that the potion. she yes, gets something she that is, but also that, and she's like, no, screw that. Well, I'm, Susan I'm gets a, the horn and a bow and arrow. And the bow and arrow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There were lots of presents, yeah. Yeah. but the guys got manly, warlike yeah. presents, and the women got presents that helped them care for others yes. or yeah. warn them of of danger. And Lucy is definitely like, screw that. I'm a badass. Like, mm -hmm. I want a sword, too. Mm -hmm. just, get, just get a bad guy in front of me. Mm -hmm. And Santa's like, nope, sorry. Women shan't be in wars. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, he wrote this book and what, what, he wrote it and 15. started it in 39 <laughs> and finished it in 49. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, of course, back then, no. Well, think that of what was going on in England at the time. I mean, if you could shield anybody from right. that. You, and he was shielding those. Th he had three orphans that were not orphans, but children that were shipped from London to avoid the Blitz and stayed with him. Yeah. So he was 
But if you wrote this book today, you could not have a scene where you pass out cool, warlike, manly toys to the boys, and the women are, are set to be nurses and take care of them. That would, no, it wouldn't fly at all, would right? Like you'd have the Hunger Games. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so, so, I so think, there you go. I mean, it's interesting. I think, uh, yeah, I, that, that, that little scene really stood out to me. And then also, uh, so, okay, so this is something I was get mentioning before, uh, um, that sort of, again, a slightly disappointing aspect of the novel is how little of it is, like, really pulled out of thin air. Um, for instance, Yes, that it's a true thing that Lewis housed a couple of kids at his house during the air raids in London. So, like, that actually happened. Whether he had a magical wardrobe in his house is, qu- is a qu- matter of question. But um, I think he did. He probably did. I choose to believe you think he, he had the magical one? <laughs> I think so. But um, also, he drew very heavily on... Um, he, he was, like, really into Norse uh, legends and Norse literature, I guess, and... Um, also, there's, and so when you talk about women, lo and behold, the most evil character in the whole book is a woman, and like her being a witch and a woman of a pale skin, and yeah, is like very, it's very much a part of the story. And um, she, you know, she's just like the embodiment of evil, which is funny, again, because I do think it was a big allegory, so. Why did th- why don't we just have Lucifer? Like, why is there a woman? Why do you why do you gotta make her a woman? <laughs> other than the fact that other than like something sexist, and there is this novel which I'm very interested in reading now, which is called um, She, and it's a let's see, I have it written down here, um, a story of advent. It's called She, a story of adventure, and it's by this guy named H. Ryder Haggard, and I guess it was very popular in England, like the first half of the 20th century. Yeah, but it's totally imperialist literature, which reminds me of Heart of Darkness, um, which is also extremely imperialist. Um, like, I, having read it sort of recently, and again, it's awful to read. It's so racist, so, so, so racist. It's awful, just awful, dense. awful. Yeah, it's dense. I had it's to very read it dense. for homework, and I, was, I just struggled. Yeah. Where's the adventure? But people, people <laughs> refer to it as, <laughs> this sto- as like a different sort of story, as like this uh, sort of like, it's one of the tropes, but I don't mm-hmm. know which one. Um, but but it's like really freaking racist, <laughs> and uh, ev- evidently this she one is too. And it's about this um, African queen named Aisha. But the fact that she's she's a woman, it, there's a lot of very complex, I guess, themes about women. Um, and like, well, it's amazing again how much that's changed, though. I, 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 I came across I came across an old Don Knotts movie last weekend, and it was it was the shakiest gun in the West. I was going to say Mr. Limpet. <laughs> he, came, he like interacted with Native Americans in right. like a cowboy and Indian story. And what they did to the Native Americans was terrible. Yeah. This is like Don Knotts' beloved character, right, from Andy Griffith's show. Right. And just the way they played up stereotypes and had people in, I guess, red face, you'd call it. Right. It embarrassing. Embarrassing. Yeah. But it was hilarious. And it was totally acceptable back then to make a story like that. Mm. Or, you know, in the 40s, of course, you know, the woman would get a healing potion and a magic horn and the man would get a sword and women wouldn't fight in wars and men would and da 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 I mean, but, but Jason... The healing, uh, yeah. But the healing potion is pretty classic from fairy tales. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you, you sort of have to, you know, you've got, was it Snow White had the healing potion? And then, of course, there was The Last Crusade where he's well, got the healing potion. Well, but there's a whole potion. problem yeah. with Disney movies where the woman's always saved by the man as well, though. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. It's not I just think it's interesting to see that. I'm not criticizing the book for that. I just, I noticed it right away and reading it as a 30 year, 37-year-old in 
2015, that stuck out to me in a way that I don't think it would have stuck out to anybody when they read the book right. in 1950. But I don't think it's, I don't, I'm not so sure change, things have changed. I, I think like the language and what's acceptable to say and stuff has changed. But we, we j just last week, um, the Secretary of Defense announced that this is like very applicable to like current days, like to have this little sort of throwaway statement, oh, it's not so great when women are at war. The Secretary of Defense just made the decision that women can be in all combat roles in the military. And I can tell you as a veteran, I always seem to bring up my veteran status on these <laughs> podcasts, but for some reason or another, but uh, there is a lot of exactly that amongst my oh, like Facebook sure. feed. Absolutely. People saying, oh, but it's so ugly that women, you know, like I have daughters, I can't imagine them, sir them like going to war. And it's like, but my sons, go ahead. Yeah. They can be stabbed and killed and whatever. <laughs> well, it's like that Loudon Wainwright song, you know, men are cannon fodder and <laughs> women and children go first. You know? <laughs> um, but the, I mean, the, the, but the really bad character is the white yes. witch. Yes, yes. So, you, you know, you want to keep them out of the battle, but the most ferocious yes. person is the white witch. Yeah. Yeah, so I think feel, does that feel like twice as bad or e do they equal each other out? <laughs> well, it does seem sort of like you know, I don't want to get too but it feels like the, the kind of a throwaway. Like you can either be really bad right. and nobody wants to be around you, right. ick, or you're kind of sweet and caring and the you're the caretaker. Right. Um so you're not that interesting. Right. So, so you're marginalized I don't really think he was marginalizing them. I, I think they were, you know, they they were. I think it's a snapshot into where the world was then. Do yeah. you? On some level, I yeah. Do. And yeah, maybe that's really what it boils down to. You know, but and one thing that occurred to me as I was reading this and thinking about it, we had this idea of this eternal winter, mm -hmm. uh, and I have a find I find it hard to believe that he. he put this in here because he wrote it, he started it before then, but you think about the nuclear winter, mm -hmm. and they had, you know, in 1945, they dropped the, the bomb, mm -hmm. and you have these horrors of the nuclear winter. Was mm -hmm. When he has the eternal winter, is he talking about, is that what he's talking about? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or is this just something out of Nordic fairy tales? Yeah, I mean, actually, that, that's, that's, it can't be ignored that that's, again, the situation around which he was writing this where it was that, that these kids had to come stay with him because London was being bombed. And so war was, yeah, war was on everybody's mind. And yeah, the reality of nuclear war became. Well, I'm fascinated by the fact that this book took 10 years to write. Yeah. Um, and you hear that about a lot of different books that have this you know, great arcs of how long it takes to write them. Famously right now, the Game of Thrones book seems to take a century of years <laughs> to write. Um, but the fact that this took 10 years, and in fact, you know, you sit around that great kind of prep piece, Gabby, and one of the things it talked about was that he actually had a draft that was completed in like 1947, 48, showed it to his friends, had four different characters, um, kids in the lead roles, and everybody said it was terrible, and so he just chucked it all mm -hmm. and started from scratch and redid the book. So you wonder all of the various iterations that this book went through to get to this final version, which is now you know, this celebrated book that every child reads, except for apparently me and your kids. <laughs> um, and they. And, and you. <laughs> but, but you think about all that was left, right? And one of the things I find fascinating, and one of the things I enjoy about doing a podcast about books, is you can kind of talk about those, the process a little bit, right? Which is, you think of all of the many choices that their author made to get to what you finally read, 
and you never know what any of those choices are. Yeah. Authors don't write like you know like behind the scenes books. There's no there's no commentary over it like you can yeah. find on a DVD or whatever. Yeah. So it's interesting to think about all the ways that this changed over that ten years. You know, when he started the book, there was no nuclear bomb, and when he finished mm -hmm. the book, yeah. two had been detonated, and yeah. you know there was a cold war, and a whole new world um, had had kind of taken over. Yeah. My favorite characters were the Beavers. I love the Beavers. I love Mrs. Beaver. I love Mrs. She Beaver. She wanted a new I love sewing machine. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Mr. Beaver. But she could also whip up a heck of a breakfast just and with she, what she brought along. Yeah. And she was like, everybody's ready to just bolt out of there. She goes, wait a minute. We need food. Where do you think you're going without a decent meal? I, I love Mrs. Beaver. Yeah. She was pretty great. I love the, um, just in general, food. Just food was a big, I liked, I, you know, it's like you can tell when someone enjoys food. Uh, I think he, C.S. Lewis must have been somebody who enjoyed food because he describes <laughs> the meals in great detail and like the fact that Turkish really delight is the big, yeah. yeah, the big thing. And it's like, not, he's like, before, you know, the meal was taken on the hilltop. It consisted of blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and he like gives all the details. It's like, yeah, I want. I actually want to know what it consisted of. So, oh, Jason, you reminded me, by the way, as well of um, the and you as well, Deborah, when you were mentioning the um, Eternal Winter, that made me think of Game of Thrones too, um, another fantasy book yep. about which the etern an eternal winter is a big part of the story. And he, you know, he's that's a very. I haven't. I'm not a reader of the books, but I'm a watcher of the show and. Uh, he is very heavily influenced by all sorts of um, myths and legends and things that he even that went out and got himself Lewis. a couple R's for his middle name. So, <laughs> 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 so it's a, uh, it's but yeah, that's the eternal winter is a big part of that story. Impor important. So um, a question I have is, um, well, to one thing I'll mention and to see if we have anything to talk about related to it is that. We've, we've thought of this book for this month because it is a holiday book. It is a Christmas book. But I think I chuckled as I finally got to the end of the book at the fact that it's a very random, like, inexplicable, unrelated to anything else part of the story that Father Christmas shows up. And, like, anything else about... We brought the cool presents, which is how they ultimately were going to win the war. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things, and I we mentioned this earlier, was that there was so much richness in the story and in the plot that could have been drawn out, right? Yeah. The, the amassing of the weapons, the, the looming war, the yeah. meeting up with the army of animals. Yeah. You know, the war itself is a page or two. And they, yeah. know, they have this little battle and off we go. Yeah. Um, there's so many good little details just sprinkled in. But again, he's writing it for kids. So he do, he's not writing a 700-page you know, tome. Yeah. He's writing a, a, you know, a fable that, yeah. that kind of clips along pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and Father Christmas did just seem to come out of, I need to get these kids presents. Ooh, this will work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I loved how everybody was all excited to see Father Christmas. Yeah, so yeah. Like, well, of course Father <laughs> Christmas comes. He yeah. comes all the time. <laughs> um, but then Aslan had, had never been to, to Narnia in uh -huh. the beaver's lifetime. Yeah. And everybody knew of Aslan, and he was... You know, maybe this is where it comes back to the allegory, right? He was mm. fabled to be on his way. Mm. Soon the Son of God will come and save us all. Yeah, yeah. So he's the second coming of Aslan? Or yeah. Yeah, maybe. yeah. For sure. You just yes. got to deal with a little bit more eternal winter, and then yes. Aslan <laughs> will come and save you. <laughs> and save Don't you. mind your station in life. So, um, go ahead, Jason. No, I just, so, you're right. It's, it's a time I just kind of accepted it as, mm. you know, well, there's a beaver talking to me, so, of course, 
Santa Claus shows up. <laughs> um, but it is an interest. Again, it's an interesting choice that, and all of the characters were excited, and and you know, Santa, it has, was it that Santa had never been? Yeah, no. that's right. Because really? so that was a sign of the witch's powers weakening. Was that it's always Christmas? It's always winter. Yeah, but right. It never that's gets right, to Christmas. Right, right, right. Which is an interesting way of looking at winter, um, because you know Christmas is right in the middle of winter, yeah. kind of like three days after the solstice, right? When we're at the mm. shortest day, it's the most depressing. There's no sunlight. Yeah. And you have well, Christmas it's the birth of Christ, so you have to have you have to have somebody who's going to introduce the coming of Aslan. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. But I did think the introduction of Santa was the most, the, the, the biggest, the roughest bump in this sled yeah. ride was Santa Claus. Yeah, yeah, what is this? I mean, it, it just, it does, it did seem a little incongruous, but, yeah. he, you know, he was pulling from everywhere. Yeah. He had and satyrs and Nordic gods. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, and if he's trying to get to, k to get to kids, like kids think about Santa Claus a lot, I think. <laughs> when I've never read, I've never, or I'm sorry, I've never seen the movies, but um, I got to imagine that the movie, The Land of Witch and Wardrobe, obviously teases out some of this stuff because it has to fill an hour and a half or whatever. This is almost like the perfect treatment for that. You mm -hmm. have a lot of details you can fill in yeah. to uh, to get there. Yeah, I think I, I did see part of the movie. Didn't Tilda Swinton play the White Witch? Oh, it had to have oh, been she'd either. Be great. Yeah, she'd be perfect. Yeah. And then I have a. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking at some point, and I don't think it was Narnia, I think, it, or I don't think it was this one. It might have been Don Treader or something. Was Daniel Craig somewhere in one oh of these wow, movies? Oh, wow, I don't know. I can't remember, <laughs> but Tilda Swinton as the White Witch is just yeah. <laughs> perfect. Um, so uh, would sh let's, let me put it this way. Sh should, should I recommend – so to me – so let me just say a little bit more about the allegory thing. Um, in researching C.S. Lewis, a big thing that that he believed in was universal morality. So there is a right and there is a wrong. There's no um, and like we he he also believed that like we all kind of know in our bones what it is. All human beings, whether we're indoctrinated into his religion, Christianity, or any other one. Um, and there, there's, I was noticing, so the other thing about sort of the allegory in my mind of, of Aslan being Christ is this whole thing about sort of being fearful of him, him in, inciting fear and respect as well as, because um, they spend a lot of the, of the book being sort of scared of him and sta you know, standing away from him. And I definitely spent some time thinking, what if the white witch turns out to be the good guy right. and Aslan's the bad guy? Because for so long... You know, the White Witch does give Edmund candy. Yeah. She is running the place. Mm -hmm. Like, you don't see her, be, but in the, you don't see her fully be mean right away. You know, she tries to, like, get the kids to come. Yeah. And Aslan's this mysterious creature who isn't very soft and no one's seen and mm -hmm. he's rumored to come. And I, and I had to catch myself and be like, you're reading too much into this. This is a children's book mm -hmm. written for children. It's not going to have a big, a big twist. But I definitely thought that through mm -hmm. and thought, is he... Does it necessarily have to be that he's the good guy? That's interesting. And the book's a little bit more straightforward than that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she and she's like levying out justice, right? Yep. She's uh, According to her own stated laws, like it is what it is. Yeah. I thought. Th I think as a kid, maybe this this was me as a kid. I think I was pretty much of a weenie. <laughs> the idea of falling through the back of the wardrobe into this land would have been terrifying. <laughs> 
<laughs> so the idea, I guess, that Lewis may have had was, you know, when you kind of fall through, you fall out of your normal everyday world where you're focused on, you know, breakfast and lunch and the errands, and you fall through the back of the cupboard, and now you're in this world where there's somebody that may be Jesus Christ, yeah. and then there's the devil, and then yeah. that's all very scary stuff, and how do you deal with it? Mm -hmm. um, so I think on, the, on that level, I think as a kid, I would have been kind of, I, I, I would I would have been probably too scared yeah. to read it because um, I would have been, I would have been scared right from the beginning of falling through the back mm. of the wardrobe. I, probably most other kids would have been delighted, but for <laughs> me, it would have been scary. <laughs> and maybe just Lewis well, meant it to be scary. And yeah. on some level, one of the messages... We we talked earlier about you know the messages don't take Turkish delight or whatever. But <laughs> one of the one of the messages or one of the mores that he definitely gets out he is throughout this book is bravery. Yeah, bravery is rewarded. True. The beavers are brave in the face of danger. The fawn is brave in the face of danger. The kids are brave mm -hmm. multiple times. And there's even a moment where were they going to leave Edmund or they had to do the fight and they weren't sure if they were, you know, and they, they had to, to be brave and basically say, no, we've got to do what's right. We can't let the fawn stay frozen. We can't leave Edmund yeah. alone. We have to stand up. And it gets back to what you just mentioned, Gabby, as far as, um, you know, right and wrong in yeah. this, this universal morality is that there definitely is a very clear good and a very clear evil. There's no doubts about it. Aslan's on the side of good. Um, but then also one of the things I found fascinating was that Considering that he didn't write this book with the intention of writing sequels, um, he kind of sets that world up. And I've only mm -hmm. read the one book, so I haven't read the other six, mm -hmm. I believe. Yeah, six. Yeah. Um, but I'm kind of curious where wh where does it go from here? You know, what what does happen next? Because it's clear that Narnia is one land of many, and that Aslan, I believe, his father maybe or something, rule all of these lands, mm -hmm. and they have to kind of you know, meter out their affection and love for them. Mm -hmm. And so he hasn't been to Narnia in a long time, which has allowed this witch to take power and to, to be the supreme ruler and oppressor. And now he comes back to kind of pay homage to his, his people mm -hmm. and, and lead them out of the desert. You see what I mean? <laughs> and then somewhere in the book, too, uh, there's a map. And you see Narnia, yeah. and then there's... Uh, Kalorman and these other lands and just as I got to the end of this I was kind of thinking hmm um, I thought well you know he did write this he was thinking about writing it and was writing it during World War II yeah, yeah. where you know the Nazis were you know if you were the English the Nazis were evil mm -hmm. um, I think it's safe to say the Nazis I were think, evil I think no I think I'm just going to say I probably don't need that qualification <laughs> they were just evil <laughs> and um and so you, you look at this map, sort of the map of Europe and, you know, parts of Europe just being taken over by mm. the Nazis until mm. um, Aslan er, and the Allies managed to rally and marshal their forces to confront yeah. evil. So I'm not, you know, th I can certainly see the, the Christ allegory, but I wonder if it's not just something much more close to home and mm -hmm. a little more historical yeah, as yeah, yeah. well and that was Fantasy. a time of good versus evil and that, you know yeah it's uh, true the, the greatest generation and all of that is wrapped up in that there is no there's no gray area like later yeah. there would be in vietnam or in you know u.s involvement mm -hmm. in the middle east mm -hmm. there was just very clearly 
these guys are bad, mm-hmm. and the rest of the world needs to stop that. Mm-hmm. And we sat back and kind of let them take over, but there's a certain point where it <laughs> we've got to <laughs> stand yeah. up and man up and get take care of this. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so I, I just want to mention a couple of random things. Um, <coughs> so there is a, uh, we'll talk about just book recommendations uh, at the end, very end of this, but um, there is a series of books called His Dark Materials by this guy named Philip Pullman, who's also a Brit. They're much more recently written. I cannot recommend them highly enough. Um, read them in my late 20s, early 30s. One more time, though. His, the dark, his, his dark Materials. materials. Okay. Uh, the f- there it's The Golden Compass. There was a movie that wasn't very oh, yeah. Golden Compass, Subtle Knife, and Amber Spyglass. This guy was a hardcore, hardcore atheist. Um, and this this is a sto- this is like a reaction to all of these um, sort of Christian allegorical stories. Really? That it, I think it's explicitly a reaction to the Lion, Lich, and the The Golden wardrobe. Compass, the movie came out right around this time yeah. as well, didn't yeah. it? Yeah. I had no idea yeah, that I that was a war. It was. It's like, well, the, the author, if you read about the author, Philip Pullman, he, he's, again, just super hardcore atheist. Pullman? He's Pullman, P-U-L-L-M-A-N. He, uh, he wants, like, kids to not believe in Jesus. He's, like, super against it. I don't, I don't know if he's still alive, but he... Uh, they're really good books. The second one is just awesome, like a super. So is the first one the Golden Compass? First one's Golden Compass. Um, second one is the sut- the subtle knife. Highly recommend. So, as a reaction. Also to children's books or. Yeah, they're children's books, but they're pretty. They're pretty heavy. Like if you if you might be scared of falling out of the I back of a wardrobe, I don't think them. you'd like. Oh, it's <laughs> scary for me. More, hu- <laughs> more Hunger Games, less Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah. So just. Wanted to mention that, and then, uh, and then my f- final question before I, but my final fact question about this book for you all is, uh, would you rec- you know, thumbs up or thumbs down slash, would you recommend it to a nine-year-old child that you knew? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is a great story. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of fun. Um, it's it's the kind of thing where when you're done, you you get out the wrapping paper tube and you have a sword fight with your brother or your sister and yeah. you free the kingdom and you <laughs> unfreeze the the creatures and off you go. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, but the reason I wanted to do this because I hadn't read it before and I wanted to read it with my 10 year old grandson. Oh. Um, so we could read it together because um, I, th- I thought it'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah. So did you do that? No, he like um, he'd already read it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> did you t- so did you talk to him about it? Well, actually, he's reading. Well, he and I are reading the True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Before, um, we haven't gotten to talk about this. Okay. Yet. Yeah, I'll be curious to hear maybe a follow-on five-minute podcast I been about his reaction. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been all over this as a kid yeah. if I had just come across it. Absolutely. Yeah, I, w- I was. I loved it so much. Um, I used to check in the back of every wardrobe I ever came across. Oh, I would. I would definitely. <laughs> um, I haven't seen a wardrobe since I've read this, but I'm definitely on it. <laughs> I was looking look. for something in the back of a closet today that I thought for sure was there, and I was like tearing it apart, and it, it did dawn on me. I thought, I'm sure this back is solid. <laughs> and here we are sitting here for hours <laughs> waiting for you. Like, Wait, where is she? Where is she? <laughs> She's in Narnia. <laughs> she was in Narnia. No, no, it would seem like a second to us. Yeah, well, and how great was it that at the end of the book, the professor did not doubt them, and they expected him to doubt them. Mm-hmm. That was one of my favorite parts about it, was that he was like, yeah, that yeah. Was what, cool. do you, what do you think about this yeah, book? Yeah, yeah. Right? Like and he, he very much said, you know, well, this is what your experience is. Why would I doubt you? And it was yeah. very empowering to kids that, yeah. that their stories and their play could be real. Mm-hmm. 
um, and be accepted by adults. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious to read the rest of the books. I want to see what happens next. Yeah. I love the setup, which was you'll go back to Narnia, but it won't be through the wardrobe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, so you never don't know, know when yeah. like, the floor is going to fall out from yeah. well, <laughs> under you. And, and I don't know if you guys have read the other books or not, but so yeah, I there's read them a prequel, all. right? There's, yeah, there's a prequel. So this yeah. is number two in the list of seven, even though yeah. it was writ chronologically first. Yeah. Again, appropriate as we have Star Wars Day. That's right. Mm -hmm. That uh, we talk about prequels and and sequels and Post super sequels and. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I also there's another random thing I want to mention is that uh, I I actually did a C.S. Lewis super deep dive in my twenties and um, re I definitely read Mere Christianity, which was good. I read the Screw Tape Letters, which was an interesting. Well, these are both books that are like trying to convince doubters to be Christians. I think. Uh, and uh, another one that I read, which I also highly recommend, is called Till We Have Faces. It's here at the library. We have it. Um, and it is, uh, it's all, similarly, he uses like mythological creatures, and it's the story of Psyche and Cupid, I believe. Um, but it's, it's about, it's about, uh, I, I, it's about a universal morality. Um, it's a lesson in universal morality, and it's good. It's it's a good book, and it's very it's like a rich, very rich, complex book that I don't think did very well. But because I was such a C.S. Lewis fangirl, when I you can't see it. it over the pod, but it is a book's book. Too. Like <coughs> yeah. This is old. It's dusty. It's, it's got big. a little sunburn on it. Yeah, a yeah. Sun, yeah. Sun bleaching. It's for the young. It's the kind of book you want to read. It's for the Young Men's Mercantile Library Association. Speaking of the way things were in 1950 with relation to women. Um, so it was oh, last taken back when reading was a man's August activity. 94. Wow. Oh, <laughs> but even, see, it it even, has a, well. <laughs> even has a card in it where you sign your little name, yeah, just yeah, like when we were kids. Does, it's yeah. fantastic. So I recommend it, though. Um, okay, so uh, otherwise, book re recommendations. Jason? So I always forget to do my homework on this, but fortunately, I've got a lot of good books that I've read um, to, to fall back on pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to recommend 20, The 27th City. Um, by Jonathan Franzen. Mm -hmm. It was his first book. Um, Jonathan Franzen today, obviously a very celebrated and famous author, but he also has all kinds of baggage with him, right? He only writes mm -hmm. these 800-page, 900-page books. They're all homework, and they're very deep and weighty. Mm -hmm. This was his first book, and it was about the city he grew up in, St. Louis, um, in the 80s. But it could play today. It's, very, it's a very interesting kind of like, like a thriller, but it's a thriller about economic development, which is hilarious, but it is um, a story, honestly, that made me, reminded me of 3CDC when I read it, because mm. it is about, it, like an evil version of 3CDC, <laughs> but it is the about, white witch it is run about by the white a, witch. Um, an effort, you know, it's, it's fictional St. Louis in the 80s, and it's this group of people that are going to buy up all this property at really low cost and gentrify it, and to make money and to consolidate power within the city, and it's a fascinating, um, story and it's and it's got you know there's good guys and bad guys and families and you know all these people in it it's a really interesting story but it's definitely not like friends and stuff today it's very straightforward very from here to there here's the plot um, and i really really enjoyed it i read it after i read the correction so that was his big mm. kind of breakout book and then i was like oh i just gotta read anything about it and it was totally different than that and i think it's a great book to um, have a little taste of friends and if you're if you're not ready to, to dig into purity just yet. <laughs> give you a little, little smaller taste. I really liked it. Awesome, awesome. Deborah? Um, I did not, well, I, two, one thing, uh, two th not necessarily a book, but I, um, thinking about C.S. Lewis, last year or two years ago, the Ensemble Theater did um, 
Freud's last session. Mm -hmm. I think I've got the name right. Yeah. And it's a conversation between C.S. Lewis and Sigmund Freud yeah. during the early part mm -hmm. of World War II. So it's a discussion between these two great thinkers in London mm -hmm. while the war is going on. Mm -hmm. And it's, it it's a wonderful exploration of the universality, the, you know, mm -hmm. the morale, uh, the universality of morality. Mm -hmm. um, so if you have a chance to see that, mm -hmm. I would highly recommend that. Um, and the last book I remember the, that I read that I really enjoyed is The Story of Us. I think I have the title right. And it's mm -hmm. David Nichols. And it's set in England. It's a English couple and their son. And it's just the story of their courtship and their marriage and the, the wobbliness mm -hmm. of their current state. And it's just so well written. Mm -hmm. It's just... It's it's just a confection. It's wonderful mm -hmm. language, mm -hmm. and I would highly recommend that. Awesome. The story of us. The story, story of, of us. us. Awesome. Um, so I'm going to say a bunch of things. Uh, His Dark Materials, read that trilogy. You'll love it. It's awesome. Um, Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. And then unrelated to anything we've talked about today, um, a recent book that I read, although it is related to Freud, is called On Missing Out, and it's In Praise of the Unli Unlived Life, written by a Brit. We're only talking about Brits today. No, nothing except for <laughs> Franzen. Um, <coughs> uh, so this guy's name is Adam Phillips, and he is a psychoanalyst. Um, he references Freud a lot. It's a tiny book, but like super dense, but very, very interesting in relation to how we as humans define ourselves by what we are not and what we are and, and what what we are not is because it's just an idea in our heads. It's it's really, really interesting. Um, wow. Book. I highly recommend it. So on missing out by Adam Phillips also here in the library. Um, so that's it. Uh, Thanks, Th guys. That was fun. Yeah, thank yeah, you. yeah. So I'll close this out. Um, thank you for joining us today on The Twelfth Story. We encourage you to subscribe via iTunes and on SoundCloud. And if you like listening, please give us a review on the, in the iTunes store and tell your friends to listen and tweet to us at Mercantile Lib. That's Mercantile L-I-B. Today's podcast was directed and engineers engineered by Chris Messick. Uh, special thanks to our guests, Jason Barron and Deborah Ginocchio. The 12th Story is a production of the Mercantile Library of downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermid. Don't forget to visit us online at mercantilelibrary.com, where you can learn about our library and our upcoming events. Have a great weekend.